Hey, go ahead and grab a seat. As you do, let me say good morning and welcome. My name is Gavin Johnson, and I am one of the pastors here. Good to see you guys. Grab your Bibles. We're going to be in John chapter 17 this morning. John 17, verses 20 through 26. I want to preach a sermon titled, Jesus Prayed for You. As you open your Bibles to John chapter 17, uh, would it be all right if I shared my favorite Bible verse this time of year with you guys? So you go to John 17, as you term, my favorite Bible verse this time of year actually comes out of Genesis 27. It's verse 3, and it says this. It says, Now then, please take your gear, your quiver, and your bow, and go out to the field and hunt game for me. So every November, when archery, Derek, you get it, brother. It's my life verse this time of year. Archery deer season uh, is right now, and I like to bow hunt. And anytime my wife, Sarah suggests that I've invested too much time in the deer stand, I just quote this verse to her and say, honey, listen, if you want to stand in the way of my obedience, that's on you. But this is the Lord's will for my life. And so uh, any other bow hunters in the room, you're welcome. That's free. That's just on the house. Uh, In fact, I might recommend if you want to get it tattooed on your forearm, just get it in Hebrew. It'll look so spiritual. No one will even know like the spiritual guy. Um, Now, when I quote this verse to my wife, she doesn't really fall uh, for this. Why? Why does she not fall for this? Well, because my wife is not only beautiful, she's also a good student of her Bible, right? She knows to understand how to apply Scripture, we need to first understand its context before we know how to apply it. Are you with me? So all of the Bible is applicable, and we need to know what it meant in its original context before we just apply it to our lives. But Here's what's fascinating about these seven verses that we're going to look at this morning. The seven verses that we are going to look at this morning actually include you in the text. If you are a follower of Jesus, did you know you made it in the Bible? What we have this morning is a real prayer that Jesus really prayed for those who would come after his disciples and follow him, which means Jesus prayed for you and me. So remember, John 17, which we've been studying, is a prayer of Jesus. This is the night before he is betrayed and goes to the cross, and he really prays in three categories. You can think of them as concentric circles. So verses 1 through 5 is the first circle. He prays for himself that he would be glorified. Verses 6 through 19, he prays for his immediate disciples that they would be sanctified. In this morning's text, in verses 20 through 26, he prays for us, his future followers, that we would be unified. That is his prayer. And so look at verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So listen, if you believe in Jesus Christ, this is a prayer that Jesus really prayed for you. And so unlike my favorite hunting verse, Genesis 27 and 3, we know that whatever Jesus prays here, we can apply directly to ourselves because Jesus actually prayed it for us. And this week, as I studied this text in preparation for this morning, a couple things really struck me as I, as I looked at this prayer. Number one, it struck me that Jesus Christ, the living God incarnate, on the day before he went to the cross, he actually thought about me. And he thought about you And he prayed for us. That's amazing. The second thought I had is that whatever he prayed in these final moments, in this last significant prayer, whatever he asked the Father for must have been important to him. Important enough for him to spend some of his final breaths praying on our behalf for these things. 
And what we're going to see this morning as we look at this final prayer that he prayed for you and he prayed for me is that he really went to the Father asking for two things for his future followers. Number one, he prays that we would have unity with each other. And number two, he prays that we would have intimacy with, with him in heaven. That we would have unity with each other and intimacy with each other. And so those are going to serve as our two kind of main points and outlines this morning. We want to look at this prayer, look at what does it mean to be unified and what does it mean to be intimate with Jesus. And so write down in your program the first point, Jesus prays for our unity with each other, our unity with each other. Jesus starts by praying in verse 20. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. What does he pray? That they may be one. Not many, but one. Jesus prays for our unity that we would be one. Now, all over the Bible, God contends for and celebrates the unity of his people. In the Old Testament, it says, how sweet it is when the brothers live in unity. Um, The Old Testament says it's like uh, oil running down Aaron's beard. I don't know what that means, but apparently it's sweet to God. It was no shave November, and uh, I put some oil on my beard this morning too. I'll tell you, it is sweet. God celebrated the unity of his people in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in his letters to the church, almost each one contains some area where he's contending for unity. So much so that in Philippians, he actually identifies leaders by name. He says, Eodia and Syntyche, work hard to work out your differences. Get it worked out so that you can live and lead in unity. By the way, if anyone's looking for baby names, Eodia and Syntyche would make great, they're biblical names. I tried going for that with our daughter, but my wife wasn't feeling it as much. And in our text this morning, Jesus actually prays to the Father and he prays, oh God, that my, that my followers in the future would be one, that we would live in unity. So church, we got to ask the question, why is this such a priority for Jesus? Why is this so important that we live in unity? Why is this worthy of his prayer? Well, I think one reason is we are prone to disunity, aren't we? It is difficult to get along and live in unity with other sinful people, even though we are all Christians or those of us who are Christians. So we live in a fallen and broken world where what comes natural? What's our natural proclivity? What's our natural inclination? Our natural response is to argue. It's to uh, get angry, drop hyper-emotional bombs on Facebook, and push away from the relational table. And this is for non-Christians and Christians. How do I know it? Because I'm friends with most of you on Facebook. We... (laughs) We are a divisive, emotional, reactionary kind of people. How many of you guys have seen churches split over trivial matters? Colors of the carpet, styles of the music. On a very serious note, and one that I have prayed about, Sarah Butenbach one time recommended that we have a more healthy option on Sunday mornings than donuts. She recommended whole wheat bagels and kale chips. I said, Sarah, I will split the church myself. I will... (laughs) I will lead the church split. We will, you with me? You want kale chips? Okay, here's what's going to happen. We're going to split this thing. There's going to be the donut church and the kale church. And the donut church is going to be awesome and all the Christians will be there and it will be fun. And the kale church will be horrible. I mean, everyone will have six-pack abs, but they will hate life because there's no donuts. And so, Sarah, we can do that. We can split this thing. (laughs) 
we are prone to disunity. We are prone to arguing. We are prone to fighting. And after all, we're Protestants. We protest everything. It is what we do. And so Jesus, with great intensity, in one of his final prayers, he prays, Oh, Jesus, make them one. Stick them together. Keep them united as one. And so we need to ask the question, okay, if this is a priority for God, how? What is the source of our unity? How are we to maintain unity with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, embedded in Jesus' prayer, he's going to show us. Uh, Look back in your Bible. I've got it on the screens as well. Three times he prays it for emphasis. Verse 21, he says that they may all be one, just as Father, or just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. Verse 22, he says that they may be one, even as we are one, the unity of God. And here's the most important. Look at verse 23. I in them and you in me that they may be perfectly one. So write this down. The source of our unity with each other is our union with God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit have been unified in perfect community for eternity past, and the gospel reconciles us back into union with our perfect God. And so what Jesus is saying is that Christian unity doesn't come from us just talking about unity, cheerleading unity, taking retreats together and hanging out together and singing kumbaya. We don't strive for unity. We strive for union with God, and we celebrate the gospel connection that we have with the Father. The gospel leads to our unity. Let me explain how this works. Traditional religion. Traditional religion divides us. Traditional religion says there are good guys and there are bad guys, and the good guys are in and the bad guys are out. Well, who are the good guys? Well, they're whoever acts like we do, believes like we do, behaves like we do, goes to the right church like we do, the same translation of the Bible like we do, and everybody else are the bad guys. And so we divide. There's the religious and the other people. The secular world is even worse. It divides us in a million different ways. It says, well, there's liberal and there's conservatives. There's the haves and the haves nots. There's the black and the white and the brown. There's the educated and the simple. And starting in about the first grade, as soon as we notice differences in each other, we divide. We tend towards that which is similar and we find comfort in and we divide over what we find difference in. So whether in traditional religion or in the secular world, we are divisive people, but the gospel of Jesus Christ shatters all those categories. What does the gospel say? The gospel says all of us are made in the image and likeness of God. So we have incredible value, dignity, and worth, each one of us. It also says that each one of us has fallen into sin. And so the religious guy who thinks he does everything right and the rebellious guy who is in the run are actually on the same footing before God in heaven. We are sinners in need of saving grace. And so the gospel says that those who trust in Jesus are reconciled to God through the Son of God to be back in union with God. And what unifies us isn't how we believe or behave, but Jesus Christ and his reconciling work on our behalf. And so imagine, imagine 100 people lost at sea, and they've been there for days, and they think it's the end, and along comes the rescue vessel. And as they're being loaded onto the rescue vessel one by one, the one thing in their heart in that moment is gratitude for salvation. We were lost, but we have been found. In that moment of salvation, there's not rich people and poor people. There's not black people and white people. There are people who have been saved by a rescuer, and that is what the gospel is like. When we realize that each one of us was absolutely dead in our sins, 
until Jesus came to ransom us and rescue us, unites us as grateful worshipers of our Savior, Jesus Christ. One of my favorite moments, at least in the last couple of years of being a pastor at this church, actually came last summer, 2016. And uh, I have lots of different favorites, but this is just an image that stuck with me. Um, it was when the political campaigns were rap, uh, ramping up and the political unrest in our nation in my opinion, in my lifetime, was at an all-time high. It was tense. And Chris and I are greeting at the door, as we like to do, and we're shaking hands, and here comes a middle-aged white guy, and he's got a Make America Great Again hat, big red one. And I shake his hand, and right behind him, they're not together, it just happened to be this way, right behind him is a young African-American girl, and she has a Black Lives Matter shirt on. And I thought, oh boy, there's going to be a protest up in the church house this morning. I mean, my hands are shaking. and like, you guys know each other? This is odd. And I just wish that I could take a, you know, a picture of what I saw in that moment. I thought, well, that's cool. And I greet them both, and they come in, and I happen to be preaching that morning. So I could see that they sat in the same area. And at the end of the gathering, we responded to the gospel being preached. And it was so amazing to see both of them raise their hands in worship sitting two aisles from one another. And it was just like a little parable, a little living picture of the way the gospel unites us. These people had vastly different value systems. They see the world and about everything in vastly different perspectives. But all of those were laid aside in this moment as two sinners saved by grace, worshiped and responded to Jesus Christ who had saved them. There's nothing like the gospel that unifies us. And one of the things I love about any church, and this one in particular, is that in this room there are liberals and there are conservatives. There are black people and there are white people. There are young people and there is Vaughn. There are <laughs> just kidding. There are young people and there are old people. There are hunters and there are PETA supporters. And if that's you, I am so sorry because steaks are so good and hunting is so much fun. But we are a diverse people. But we're not here because of our commonalities. We're here because of our common Savior, Jesus Christ, who has saved us. And notice that Jesus doesn't pray for our uniformity. He doesn't say, God God in heaven, make them all the same. He doesn't doesn't ever, ever ask that. If he was after uniformity, he would not have chosen the 12 disciples. You've got a political zealot and a tax collector working side by side. You've got John, the gentle, loving, affectionate disciple, and Peter, the guy who talks before he thinks, a la Chris Haruska. I mean, it was a very diverse group, but that's what made it so beautiful. There was unity among the diversity, and Jesus doesn't pray for uniformity. He prays for unity, that they would be one. In fact, Jesus is going to go on to point out that our unity, despite our diversity, is one of our most compelling witnesses to the onlooking world. Get back in the text. Look at verse 21. He says, he prays, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. So somehow the world is supposed to know that Jesus the Son was sent by God the Father by the way we actually get along with each other. Verse 23. I in them and you in me that they may become perfectly one. Why? So that the world may know, he says it twice, that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Write this down. The sake of our unity with each other is the mission of God. 
Unity is an evangelistic necessity. What Jesus is saying is that the church is designed to be such an eclectic conglomeration of unified but diverse individuals that the gospel can be the only explanation for it. John 13 and 35 says, They will know that you are my followers by your love for one another. Can I just say, it's a humbling thing to think that our greatest witness to the world might not be how well and compelling we can articulate the gospel invitation. Our greatest witness to the world might not actually be how well we can articulate the um, ontological argument for the existence of God. Our greatest witness to the world might be just whether or not we can get along with each other. (laughs) That's what Jesus is saying. By your unity, the world will see that Jesus Christ is sent by God the Father. What that means is that our unity is meant to be visible. The onlooking world ought to be able to look in at how we speak about other Christians and other churches, how we interact with other Christians and other churches, and it should be attractive to them. There should be something marked different about gospel-centered Christianity from everything else in the world that they would say, maybe there's something to this Jesus guy. So how does that work out? I don't know if you guys knew this, but not all Christians agree on everything. Did you know that? I don't know if you knew that, but we don't. There's a lot of diversity in theology and practice and how we work out different things. And uh, we got to figure out, um, what does it mean to be unified? Does that mean we just sort of reduce everything to the lowest theological common denominator? Do we ignore the differences for the sake of unity? Can I tell you the key? Here's the key. It's very simple. It is very possible to disagree with a Christian brother and sister, and yet there not be disunity. Disagreement does not equal disunity. Are you with me? In fact, the gospel frees us to disagree with each other with great charity and graciousness. Here's why. The gospel says we weren't made right with God because we were right on all the issues. The gospel says we were made right with God because of Jesus Christ. And so we are secure in our union with God. And that's what unites us with each other. And then with the security of that union with God, unity with each other, we can debate the issues. We can debate robustly and thoughtfully, but we can do it with great graciousness and winsomeness and love and kindness. And at the end of the day, if we can't settle our differences, we can say, you love Jesus? Yeah, I love Jesus? Yeah, then we'll ask Jesus when we see him in heaven. (laughs) And Jesus will let you know that Gavin was always right and you were always wrong, but I'm going to let him tell you that instead of me, because Gavin's very humble like that. And so... This is true of individuals and of churches. This is how we have to exercise this unity. Can I just say that? Can I coach us up? Because this is important. So let's just hit some examples. Let's make it awkward. Um, Do all churches believe the same thing about baptism? No, we believe very different things. And some of my personal friends who are pastors, some of the ones I respect and admire and look up to and learn from the most are Presbyterians. I have a number of PCA pastors that These guys are amazing. They coach me. They love me. I learn from them. And I think they're wrong about baptism. They hold to a covenantal view of baptism where they believe that baptism should be done with infants, signifying them entering the covenant family of God, which in the New Testament is the local church. So it's essentially their church membership. And I just say, that's a great idea. I just never read that in the Bible. (laughs) I mean, I never saw that. And so we debate these issues, and we disagree on these issues, and we practice different things in our churches. And yet I go, do they love the Lord Jesus? Yes. Do they believe he's the only way to the Father? Absolutely. 
Do they teach the Bible? Yes, better than me most weeks. And so with great unity as Christian brothers, we're going to disagree with great charity and kindness. Uh, Here's a hot one these days. Uh, Gender roles in the church. Can we just go there? Do some churches have different views? Yes, absolutely. Um, Some would say that God created us distinct as men and women, and that only affects us biologically. So we're biologically distinct, but in the home and in the church, we're interchangeable in our roles. That's based on gifting, not on our gender design. We at City Light affirm, and I do, that we are equal in value, dignity, and worth. God created us as image bearers, and yet he created us distinctly with complementary roles in the home and the church. That it's not insignificant and interchangeable, but it's actually a metaphor, a living analogy of Christ in the church. So headship in the home and in the church and the male-woman relationships are beautifully designed by God, and they should be upheld and honored as a living testimony to God. Now, what do we think about other churches that disagree? Well, do they love Jesus? Do they preach the Bible? Do they affirm that he is the only way to God the Father? If the answer is yes, then we love them. We're united with them as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we disagree because they're wrong and we're right. (laughs) And we're so humble. Do you see that? We can disagree and not be in disunity. In fact, the way we handle disagreements might be our best witness to the world. When the world can look on and say, oh, you disagree with them, but you're still united with them? Oh, yeah, totally. Wait, you you disagree with them on these issues, and yet you're still friends with them? They're brothers and sisters in Christ. Of course, they're like family to us. Do we disagree? Yeah. Do we love them? Yeah. Do we have unity with them? Absolutely. And the world looks on and goes, huh, didn't know that could happen. When the church looks in on our church and goes, so you guys don't all have the same skin color? No. Same background? No. Same political opinions? Oh, no. (laughs) Same thoughts about music in the church? Definitely not. Check my inbox. Um, But you love each other? Oh, like family. We would die for each other. We pray for one another. We talk about our disagreements, and we hug it out, and we love, and we press on because the mission of God is at stake, not our opinions and preferences. What a witness. So what's at stake in our unity? The mission of God, the reputation of the gospel. Unity is an evangelistic necessity. So Jesus' first prayer, he prays, oh God, make them one. Second thing, he says, he he prays for our intimacy with him. Write that down. The second primary thing Jesus prays for is our intimacy with him. Now, that's a funny word, isn't it? Intimacy. I realize anytime I say that, um, there's a number of people in the room, mostly the dudes that get uncomfortable with a word like intimacy. Um, Guys don't normally sit around on a Friday night and talk about intimacy and sing love songs to Jesus. I mean, it's just kind of a, I'll admit, I, I get uncomfortable with it. Like, I still feel new to this Christian things. And when we Christians get together and we're going to pray and we hold hands, I always get nervous that someone's going to like interlock fingers with me and I'm going to have to swing at them. I mean, I'm just, I'm like a German Lutheran kid from a blue collar small town and like intimacy and let's hold hands. I'm like, no, that's, don't do that. That's really weird. And And so I just want to recognize some of us are a little hesitant to talk about a relationship with Jesus in that way. But listen, we have to realize the goal of the gospel is not just that we would go to heaven instead of hell. The goal of the gospel is a real, authentic, loving, honest, life-giving relationship with the God who created us. And it's to be intimate, meaningful, close, serious. And so Jesus is going to pray for intimacy with him in two primary ways. The first way, and you can write it down, he prays for 
closeness and proximity, or intimacy and proximity, that we would be near. Look in verse 24. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. That is a good Bible verse, okay? Can I just say, it is incredibly comforting for me to know that Jesus prayed that I would be with him in heaven. If Jesus prayed that I would be with him in heaven, then I will be with him in heaven because Jesus' prayers get answered, amen? I don't know about you, but I have certain people in my life that just kind of feel more spiritual than me. (laughs) And it's like, if I pray for something, I figure, eh, I'm batting about 500. You know, it's hit or miss whether or not God's gonna answer there's certain people in my life that are like spiritual giants when they say, I'm praying for you. It's like, well, you bat about a 750. So I want you praying for me. What's comforting here is that Jesus prays. When Jesus prays to the Father, he bats a thousand. So when he prays, I pray that my believers will be with me where I am and see my glory. We will be with him and we will see his glory if we believe in him. And can I just say, I think we underappreciate how good of news that is that we are going to be in heaven someday. I mean, we like the idea of heaven, but I think we sort of reduce it to like a preferable option to hell. Like, I prefer living, but if I have to die and these are my options, I'm definitely going to pick heaven because let's not pick the other place, you know? And I think the reason why we maybe underappreciate how good of news that is is because I think maybe we've been discipled on our view of heaven more by like kids cartoons and we have the actual Bible itself. When we talk about heaven, I think the average American, what comes to mind is like, okay, we're going to be in the clouds and there's going to be these like baby angels with wings, wearing adult diapers, playing harps. And I don't know about you, but I'm like, that sounds really cool for 90 seconds. And then my ADHD kicks in and thinks, am I going to be wearing a diaper? Do I have to sit on that cloud for like eternity? And Heart music's cool for a second, but you're talking eternal life and the, the harp diaper thing, and it sounds horrible, but that's not, thank God, not at all a biblical picture of heaven. The Bible says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and so heaven is the presence of God. And we are going to be out of our bodies with the Lord in his presence, and it will be remarkable. And we're not going to live in the clouds. The Bible says that on that last day, Jesus is going to return bodily, physically to this earth. He's going to eradicate sin and injustice. He's going to rule and reign. Our physical bodies will be resurrected. We will be rejoined with our bodies. We will live in a new heaven and a new earth, in a new city. We are going to live robust, adventurous, full lives in vibrant community with one another in the continual presence of God, and it's going to be amazing. There is nothing like it. You can clap for that. And we might think, man, I I never really think about heaven. We do. In our heart of hearts, we are all longing for it, whether we know it or not. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity, he said, "If if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And so listen, every unmet longing of your hearts, every desire that seems to go unsatisfied, every craving that you've ever had will be at once fulfilled when you are in the presence of Jesus Christ. That's why this is amazing news to me. And it should be to you that Jesus prayed that we would be with him. That is what awaits us in glory. So first he prays that we would be close in proximity. The second thing he prays for, 
Um, I'll show you in verse 26. He, he prays that we would be close in love in the here and now. Verse 26. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. Why? That the love which you have loved me may be in them and I with them. Write down on your note page the last note of the morning. He prays that we would be close in his love. And listen to the kind of love that he prays would be in us. He says, Father, as you have loved me, may that love be in them. Okay, I want us to appreciate what Jesus is actually praying for there. Because we talk about love, we all want to feel loved. But he is talking about an utterly different kind of love. He's talking about Trinitarian love. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit for eternity past and eternity future are living in perfect, loving community with one another, deferring and honoring one another without any disagreement, without any argument, without any disunity, but perfect love. And he is praying the fa- that kind of love, that that love would be in them. Is they're united with me, that they would be united with you, and that we would live in holy, Trinitarian community and love. Listen, that's an eternal, perfect, profound love. This is a love that no Hallmark card or movie can communicate. It's a love that even the best of marriages cannot touch. It's a love that all of us, whether we know it or not, is actually longing for. It's what seeks us out and motivates us in every direction, in every venture in life, and yet we find it and it's fully satisfied in Jesus. And so I need you to know this morning, if you've ever wondered how God feels about you, it couldn't be more clear than in this verse. He says, the reason why I have made your name known to them, Father, is so that our love would be in them. City Light, this is the good news of the gospel. Did you know this love is available to us and in us not because we're lovable? God loves us in spite of the fact that we are unlovable. God asks us to live in unity. We don't live in unity. We push away from the table. We get in petty fights. We give up way too easy. We settle for politeness and niceness and moving on. We are selfish creatures, prideful creatures, lust-filled creatures, and yet in all of that, Jesus' love for you and for me is unwavering. He loves us in spite of us. And I think these two prayers that Jesus has for us, for our unity with one another and our intimacy with him, are not two random disconnected thoughts, but they are really one and the same. Because when we look at the undeserved, unmerited, unearned love that God has for us, when we think about our disunity with God the Father, is there anything more disjointed and disunited than a holy and righteous God and sinful people who have rebelled against him? We were in disunity, and yet Jesus Christ has reconciled us. And as we stay close to that Jesus, how can we not but look at each other and say, man, we are different. We have different thoughts, we have disagreements, we have hurt one another, we have sinned against one another, and yet, in the same way that Jesus has pursued us in unity, I'm not going to push away from the table. I'm going to push in, we're going to lean into the blood of Jesus, we're going to lean into the good news of the gospel, and we are going to apply grace and be unified for the sake of Jesus and his mission. And so City Light, let me just close by saying, I'm so glad that Jesus prayed for us some 2,000 years ago. He prayed that we would have intimacy with him. And I have to say, as awkward as I made that sound, knowing the personal love of God for me has changed my life more than anything else in this world. Additionally, as I've been a Christian now for about half of my life, I have to say, I haven't done this Christian thing alone. I've gotten to journey in community with some of the most amazing people I've ever met. People that are different than me, people that have different opinions than me, 
different thoughts, and yet they've become closer than family. They've led me, discipled me, prayed for me, encouraged me. And as I look around this room, I think you guys are like family. This is a beautiful thing that God has given us, the local church. What a witness to the world. And so why don't you stand to your feet? Can we just pray that the unity that we have enjoyed, that God would maintain that and push us forward in that unity? And so Jesus, as I just think back, even the life of this little church, not even five years yet, and yet we've journeyed a lot. There's been many times we could have been in disagreement and disunity, but we've experienced significant grace. I can't remember one significant fight in this church. You have kept us unified. And so God, we praise you for that. We thank you for that. And yet we know that we are not immune to disunity. We know that next year could all be different. And yet, God, we look to the gospel. We look to Jesus Christ, the one who has unified us with God the Father. And we pray that that gospel would so saturate our hearts that we would press in toward one another in unity. That as we talk about each other, even other Christians, other churches, that we can disagree with thoughtfulness and with passion and yet remain in Christian unity. Oh God, give us your grace to humbly live this out in our day. In Jesus' name, amen.